Hi. <laughs> you ready to work? Uh, I'm going to pray for us once again, if you don't mind, uh, and, and we'll get rolling. Father God, thank you for another Sunday. God, thank you uh, that you love each and every one of the people in this room. In fact, you love them so much that you orchestrated their entire life in such a way that they'd be here tonight. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And, and, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd meet us here, that you would uh, rend the heavens and come down and be present among us, that this building might quake. God, we, we, we long to worship you, we long to know you, and so we ask that you would reveal yourself, ask that you'd help me to get out of the way, and that uh, you would uh, show us your son here in the remainder of this evening. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, the, the Latin word adventus is where we get our word for advent. Uh, that's, that's, that's where, and, and ultimately it comes uh, from a, a Greek word as well. Uh, and, and, and where this started, uh, you have to rewind all the way back to the 4th century. Uh, so it's, it's been a minute. Uh, rewind to the 4th century, and you begin to see documentation of this little season with candles and, and where we come and very intentionally begin to celebrate uh, Christmas uh, as a church. Uh, happens then. And, and it's fascinating uh, because it was during that same window of time, right in the 4th century, uh, that there was a popular heresy uh, which is to say false belief. Uh, there was a popular heresy called Priscillianism, which you don't need to remember. Uh, but that, that heresy was basically uh, a strong form of dualism. It was, it, was, it was pitting our earthly physical experience as bad against spiritual existence, what, what, what Jesus brought, what, what the offer of Christianity is as spiritual. So it was pitting those two things against each other, physical, bad, uh, spiritual is good. Um, and it stands to reason, I think at least, uh, that, that that difficulty within the church would start to want them to stick a magnifying glass on Christmas, on, on what it is that, that Christmas celebrates uh, specifically, which is this idea of the Incarnation. That's the, 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 the technical term, uh, which is the doctrine of Jesus, the Son of God, coming to this earth as both fully man and fully God. And that's, that's what we're celebrating, that's what Advent's for, that's, that, and, and that's ultimately what the sermon's going to end up being about. Um, and I want to uh, focus on that spirit of Advent here. Um, as I said, it, was, it started in the face of that heresy, um, and it was a powerful reminder of the actual truth that the spirit and the body are not fundamentally at odds with one another, they're harmonious. You are both a body and a spirit. You're not a spirit with a body. You're not a body with a spirit. You are both, and both are significant, and they find their fullness in Jesus. That's, that's what we're celebrating, right? And it's also fascinating to me, personally, uh, that, the, that they decided to place Christmas and this Advent focus, this month-long focus, um, during this part of the winter when it's dark, and it's cold, right? It's literally dark and cold outside right now. Uh, and in the face of darkness and coldness and struggle, we, we need a reminder. They knew it then, we know it now. We need a reminder of the one true good light. 
and that's Jesus. And so as I've uh, studied uh, Advent a little bit this week, and studied is probably too strong of a term, as I've looked at it, uh, I've begun to notice uh, a pattern. Uh, it doesn't take very long uh, in paying attention to see this pattern again and again. Uh, in the midst of darkness and struggle all across history, in the midst of it, right as it's hitting its worst point usually, light bursts forth. And you see it all again and again. Um, the, the obvious example, there wasn't struggle, but uh, at the very beginning in Genesis 1, there's this picture of darkness, infinite darkness, apart from God himself, who's living in a contented community within the Trinity. But apart from him, there's nothing, and he spoke, and there was light. Immediately uh, after he's finished his creation and, and mankind exists, and sin enters the picture, and evil enters the picture, right after that, literally just a couple of verses after we find out about it, God promises he's going to make it right. Out of that evil, out of that darkness, out of that struggle, there's this promise of light. In the early days of the people of God, after God called specific people to himself, the Israelites, they end up brutally enslaved to the Egyptians, and God speaks to Moses in a burning bush. Through light, the promise of hope, hope comes, right? In the repeated failures of the Israelites in following God, God continues to send them people regularly saying, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. If you go that way, it's going to hurt more. Come this way toward the light. And then silence. Silence, as, as we understand it, for right around 400 years, there's no specific person God's sending telling them, hey, go this way. Silence, darkness, struggle, wondering, what are we supposed to do? And then the Son of God is announced and shows up. Right? And, and, and here's what I find especially intriguing about that whole paradigm of darkness and struggle and evil and then light bursting forth. Uh, what I find intriguing about it is that all of you, humanity and the rest of creation yearns for this pattern. We yearn for it. We, we all feel the darkness and coldness of winter, both literally and metaphorically. Right? Like, if we go outside right now, it's cold and dark. We feel that physically. But we feel, often during this season of life, additional anxieties, additional depression, additional uh, uh, questions about how, how to make ends meet. All these things are often associated with this season so there's this literal and metaphorical winter, and in that space, we long for spring. Some of you are weird and you like winter, so I'm not talking about that for you, but, but we long for spring, at least metaphorically. If we've got these struggles, we long to come out of them. We long for things to get better. We long for God to make it right, uh, and, and you see it um, beyond just personal. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, have any of you, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I, I'm not as big of a nerd as some people are on this particular thing. Have any of you read or seen The Lord of the Rings? Okay, yes, okay, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't matter if you know tons about it or just a little bit. But which parts end up being the most memorable? It's exactly this pattern. It's the parts where uh, darkness is starting to grow in power and the fellowship forms. It's in the midst of the hardest battles up on a hill, there's light and reinforcements. It's, it's as a, an impossible battle at the end is met by victory as the ring is thrown 
uh, into the volcano, right? This, that's the pattern that we see in literature and in art. We yearn for it. Even if we've got a realistic view of the world, we still yearn for things to be made right. Uh, and we do it with our own history. Uh, we celebrate the moments in human history where darkness was clearly overcome by the light. Think of the major world wars. Think about the civil rights movement, right? We celebrate those things where light seems to burst forth into the midst of darkness. So much so that we'll overlook the hints of darkness that come with it. Right on the, to on the topic of world wars, Winston Churchill comes to mind. That's a guy who's got a significant role in, in the outcome of World War II, and yet we will often ignore all of the messy baggage that comes with studying him as a person, and we do it with everyone, right? We, we look at the good overcoming evil. Same, again, it's the same with arts. It's the same with sports. The, the, the stories, the, the things that we want are the things where there is the most darkness and light bursts forth. It's the lens through which we see the world even when we maintain that realism or pragmatism. We want to see it. And that, my friends, is the point of Advent. That's the point of the candles. And the text we're going to be reading here in just a second, and the text you'll also be reading this month, is so perfect for precisely this reason. It's a reminder to see the light. That's what Advent is. Okay? Uh, so there's a whole bunch of context uh, that I need to give you, but I, I want to keep things uh, pretty straightforward and simple uh, the chapter uh, that will be read before each sermon all month long um, is Isaiah 53. We just read it uh, mere moments ago. And so I decided, as I was prepping, I decided to uh, give you guys uh, actually the first part of that text. The, the, the line of thinking begins in Isaiah 52. Uh, that's uh, where, where this flow of logic and this poetic thought begins is in Isaiah 52. Uh, so, so that's where we're going to be. I'm going to give you the context, and, and my hope is that as you read Isaiah 53 the rest of the month, that some of these things at least will come to mind. And before I read to you uh, the few verses we need to get through, um, here's what you need to know, here, as, as so it makes sense to you. Uh, first, Isaiah is a prophet called by God uniquely called by God, uh, to, to speak to the people of God. And God gives him a sequence of visions to communicate what he wants to have communicated. Uh, and it happens over the course of a whole bunch of chapters uh, in the Bible. And, and where we pick things up, it's really weird to explain. Uh, it's, there's, there's time jumps that happen. But Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is addressing, from his perspective, a future group of Israelites because he knows what's going to happen to them. God's given him a vision of what's going to happen to them. And so he's addressing them. This group of Israelites has been sent into exile. They've been subjugated. Things are difficult. And he's given this vision of, hey, this is what you need to cling to when these days come. Things are about as bad as they could possibly be. And in the midst of that darkness and struggle... Isaiah sees this picture of redemption taking place through a unique person in history. Okay? And so in, I, in chapter 53, we're told a bunch about this servant, but I want to back it up to Isaiah 52, the last few verses, starting in verse 13. Uh, and it'll be up there, I think. Uh, it says this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. All right. So this is actually the beginning of the flow of thought that leads into all of chapter 53. And it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit weird. Uh, it doesn't, uh, there's not a natural flow here. And so uh, we're going to break it down. And again, as I said, I hope as this month goes on, you'll just, just keep in mind a couple of the things that we talk about here tonight every time then you come back to Isaiah 53. He's talking to a, a group of people that's been physically defeated and cast into exile. They've rebelled against God, and they've struggled in a host of ways. Their leaders have been, for the most part, weak and prone to wandering. They've been failures of cre in creative ways. And undoubtedly, I think, the Israelites, the people who are receiving these words, I've got to imagine that they're wondering what on earth is going on what on earth they're supposed to do? Why aren't things working out? Where is God in the midst of all of it? And the first word of encouragement in the vision is the word see. Or behold. Or look. See, behold, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Uh, we've got the benefit of hindsight, and I'm going to reference that a couple of times now. Uh, we're, we're quite a few hundred years removed from when this was written, when the vision happened. And so we know who he sees. We know that he sees Jesus. And so the principal message, the, the command that's taking place here after describing their failures, after uh, looking through and seeing the vision of what's about to come, the command of encouragement is, if you want to find light, if you want to find meaning, if you want to make sense of things in your life, look to Jesus. And that is at the heart of this text, and it's at the heart of the Bible, and it's at the heart of all of reality. Look at Jesus. And Isaiah goes on to explain uh, several reasons why people ought to look to him, why he is worth looking at, why he is the light. But I actually want to camp here for a few moments in this basic idea all of the things that we just, all that introduction that I did, they all anticipate Jesus in some way or another. Obviously, all of the scriptural ones do, but beyond that, the nature of human longing, the nature of our brokenness, the nature of the things that you feel in the darkness and cold of winter, the nature of those things is such that only God himself could fulfill it and redeem it. Scripture says so. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God puts eternity into our hearts. We want it. We need it. We yearn for it. And so we go searching for it. Because we can't help ourselves. We try to find light. We try to find good things. And we ultimately can't find them apart from Jesus. Right? The imagery of the Lord of the Rings points, and, and, and Tolkien was pretty intentional with this, it points to the true light 
entering the darkness of our world to purchase redemption against all odds. That's what it's pointing to. The history of mankind longs for there to be somebody, anybody that would actually achieve goodness and love. That's why we, that's why we view so highly the few people who flirt with it. Right, the way we cheer in the most intense moments of sports events or stories or whatever speaks to our desire to worship and glorify the one who could do it on a cosmic scale. This is who we are. We're wired up this way. So, behold the servant. Look to him. Follow him. He is what our hearts and our minds long for. So, that's where it starts. You've got all this baggage, you've got all these issues, you've got all these doubts and all of these struggles and this darkness, all of it. And Isaiah references all of it and he tells them not to go that way. And then he says, see, look, behold the servant who can make this right who can redeem, who can show you the light in the midst of all of your darkness. And so then he goes on to explain, and we're going to break that down. Uh, he, he explains why this servant, why Jesus is worthy of our attention and admiration, why we should love him and serve him and follow him. And first, you see it, it's right in that first line. It says, see my servant, read Jesus. See Jesus will act wisely. And there's a couple of moments in, uh, in this text, and I'll, I'll reference them. There's a couple of moments in this text where it, this was written in Hebrew, or we receive it in Hebrew, and, and several of these words in English basically mean one thing, but the Hebrew word means more than one thing. And so I'm going to reference a couple of those. In this case, the, word, the words act wisely has kind of two meanings. The one is on the surface, the one is under the surface. Um, and the first one is, is the obvious one. It, it means that Jesus would possess true wisdom and prudence. In other words, no matter what happens, Jesus would always know what to do and why to do it. Always. There's never a situation, nothing has happened all throughout history. Jesus knows what to do and why to do it. And with the benefit of hindsight, again, and with the access to Scripture that we have, we get to see that that's true. That this vision that Isaiah has is true. Because if you read about Jesus in the Gospels, he is never stumped. And people try. People actively walk up to him, and they try to riddle him something, and they always leave dejected, wondering what they did wrong, because they're trying to mess with him, and it doesn't work. Jesus is never stumped. He is never left wondering what to do. He knows precisely what to do at all times, because he is both God, with all of the unlimited resources of being God, and he is human, which means he, he knows everything about our experience. He himself has experienced it. There's nothing you felt that Jesus hasn't also experienced. And it's a, it's a really beautiful picture of what the incarnation is and what it does. So that's the first thing. Jesus always knows what to do and why to do it. The second thing that act wisely means is 
he also would, without a doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus would bring about his aims. So he not only knows what to do and why to do it, he, whatever he sets out to accomplish, he accomplishes. There's nothing that he misses the boat on. There's nothing he wants to go back and, 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 and he did wrong. He accomplishes everything he means to accomplish. There is no failure in Jesus. It's a big part of why he's worthy of our hearts and relationships and worship. Because he will never fail you. Do you remember uh, the first time... Uh, do you remember the first time you realized that your parents kind of sucked? And, and here's not what I mean, right? All, every kid's third word is mine, right? So, so I'm not talking about the moment that a parent parents and doesn't give their child something their child shouldn't have and the child's upset about it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the first moment you really realized your parents sucked, like they actually did something wrong. They, they were wrong. And, and of course, I want to give the benefit of the doubt here. There's a lot of parents in this room. Uh, almost all parents, almost being important, but almost all parents try their very best for their kids. And that's just the truth. Almost all parents try with whatever limited resources they brought and whatever baggage they brought when that, when that ship got rolling, uh, they try their best for their kids. And I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, but I was recently in a conversation with a dear friend of mine uh, who, who not too long ago came out as gay. Uh, and, and in the process of coming out, it was, there's a long on-ramp there. There's a long on-ramp there. Uh, but, but in the last little bit, it, it jumped up. And in that process, in the on-ramp, he, he dropped his faith. Uh, he divorced his wife, who was his high school sweetheart, uh, and, and made the move toward living life as a gay man. And, and obviously, there are elements of that story uh, that, are, that are sad, not the least of which is the whole deal with his wife, uh, who I know. Um, but the saddest part of that whole story and that whole process for me was a conversation we had about his relationship with his parents. Because it's not the stereotype. They haven't really done anything to actively reject him or actively push him away. There hasn't uh, been any of those things. But he has vivid... <laughs> I mean, to the, to the minute detail, he has vivid memories of his initial conversations over a decade ago with his parents about his sexuality and about wrestling with it. And I'm confident that they did their very best in those moments, that they, that they tried to speak into that as best they knew how, but because of those conversations that happened... Over a decade ago, he feels that he can never trust them again. And he doesn't intend to. Right? All people, all people, very much including the nearest and dearest people in our lives, all people will fail us. And the reciprocal is true. We will fail them. That is inevitable. Any of you who are married, you know this all too well. We will fail one another, but not Jesus. 
but not Jesus. Every single thing that he means to accomplish, he does. Everything he means to bring about in and through and with you, he does because he cannot fail. He acts wisely. And, and so I want this to be, I hope, uh, a word of encouragement to you tonight. Jesus will not fail you. No matter what he's calling you to, no matter what he's asking of you, no matter what circumstances you're in, good or bad, and I'll be honest with you, my, my wife and I are in a difficult season, not between us, but just our circumstances are really frustrating. No matter what is going on, Jesus will not ever fail you. And that's what it means when it says, my servant will act wisely. He knows what to do, and he won't fail. Next thing we see uh, is in the second half of verse 13. Uh, it says, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one, uh, because this one is actually fairly straightforward. Um, it's clear that Isaiah is talking about a, uh, somebody, about a person that is entirely set apart. This person is unique from the remainder of the created order. He'll have a special place. He'll be high and lifted up. It's a beautiful picture. And, and again, with, with the benefit of hindsight and all we know from Scripture, there's an additional piece there. We know, based on what Scripture says, that every single knee will bow Every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There is no way around recognizing this reality. I don't care if you came into this room a devout, lifelong, decades deep disciple of Jesus, or if somebody shoved you in here. Right? Every single one of us, our knee will bow and our tongue will confess this reality that He is Lord. He is high and lifted up. But what's fascinating about this description, I think, uh, is actually what comes right on the heels of it in verse 14. In verse 14. So right after that, Isaiah says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So uh, right, right after this good, wise, holy servant is envisioned and Isaiah sees this great picture of him, we find an altogether different picture. This servant is marred beyond humanity. He's appalling. It's disgusting. It churns the stomach. It's a deep and terrifying image. Right? The goodness and the power that he wrought would be destroyed to the point of being unrecognizable. And, and, and to be honest, to Isaiah's original audience, I've got to imagine this would have been a, a challenging set of images to juxtapose. Right? You get this picture of somebody who, who's going to accomplish the thing that, things that he means to. He's high and exalted, and then he's defeated, marred. 
It doesn't really make a lot of sense at first pass, but we know that that good, perfect servant had to absorb the darkness and the pain and the struggle and the evil from the world in order that he could offer something new. He had to absorb all of it so that he could give a new life. And he would literally, he would end up giving all of himself to that end. Uh, and I, and I want to enter into this space again for a minute. Uh, I guess I can't really speak for you, uh, but I can speak for me. And I hope that some of it rings true for you. But when I'm, honest, when I'm being honest with myself, and that's a really important qualifier because uh, self-honesty is difficult. I work with church folk. I see it all the time. Being honest with ourselves is difficult. But when I'm honest with myself, the imagery that's used here to describe Jesus feels relatable to me. His form marred beyond human likeness. And here's why. There are things that I have done in my, and I'm speaking for myself, not for anybody else. There are things that I have done in my life. There are things that I have thought and things that I have said that feel to me beyond that of a human. Like, I've done things that make me feel beneath all of you. And sure, I know intellectually that that's not really true. Because I know many of you have done plenty of dark things as well. In fact, I know some of your stories. Some of you are trying to compete with me. Right? But I really do feel that way. I have absolutely felt barely human before. Especially, you know, lying in bed at night thinking about stuff. I have felt barely human. And for that reason, it makes painful sense to me that the punishment Jesus bore for me would force him to be beaten and tortured to the point of not being recognizably human because that's me. That's the stuff he's being, he, he, that's, that's what he bore. He bore my darkness and my evil and my shame. He did it for me and he did it for you. And, and so keep in mind, we're, in just a few verses here, in just a few sentences really, we're getting a really big, beautiful, robust picture of who this servant is. Isaiah says, look, behold, stare at him. Right? He's wise, he's effective, and he is willing to suffer on your behalf. But let's keep reading because that's not where it stops. Though that's already a, probably plenty. In verse 15, the thought continues based on all of that. It says, so the servant will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they'll see. And what they have not heard, they'll understand. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you're paying attention, I don't blame you if you're not. But if you're paying attention, that should ring off of us, uh, an immediate question, which is, what is going on? <laughs> uh, we've got this picture of a servant. He's wise. He's, 
he's good, he's, he's going to suffer, and now there's this talk about kings and nations um, and the response of them. And, and here's the reality. Uh, it's actually a, a fairly appropriate next step because what Isaiah is basically saying is the person and work of Jesus, this servant... The person, his work on the cross in the gospel has cosmic implications. It, it affects all of the universe, and so it's no wonder that something so significant would bear influence on the earth. The nations and the kings of those nations will be influenced by this servant. It's unavoidable. So, let's look at them. Uh, what, what happens in the byproduct of the work of this servant First, it says, he will sprinkle many nations. Uh, in English, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That doesn't mean anything. So, so to get a gist of what's going on here, you've got you've to you've look at the Hebrew. Uh, and the Hebrew is a bit tricky. Here's another place where in poetry form, Isaiah uses language that is deliberately ambiguous. And many commentators, myself included, think that Isaiah is doing it on purpose. He's trying to convey multiple things at once. What does sprinkling the nations mean? Well, first, that word in Hebrew, that, that word for sprinkle, uh, conveys, like the idea of baptism, conveys purification. Purification. The idea follows logically from everything that came before it. Jesus takes on my darkness and sin and grants me his life in return. He makes me pure. He changes me. The same offer is made for you. And by that, uh, Jesus will sprinkle or purify many nations. He'll make many, many people clean and grant them new life. And my prayer is that that's true of everybody in here. I don't know all of you. But my prayer is that he's making you pure. But the second is just as interesting or more so that word sprinkle can also be translated startle. So on the one hand, Jesus is purifying people for himself, and on the other hand, he's startling a bunch of people. He's scaring them. He's frustrating them. He's making them uncomfortable. It's a really interesting dichotomy within that one word. Jesus will be exalted and suffer, and in the end... That means some people he'll bring to himself and purify, and others are going to be startled, scared, and reject him outright. That's what's going on within that word. So he's going to sprinkle many nations, and then kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, excuse me, what they weren't told, they'll see, and what they haven't heard, they'll understand. Uh, it's kind of, again, uh, this funky poetic thing that Isaiah's got going. These people with virtual unilateral power, think of uh, the powers that be in, in, in our own country. There's a lot of things you can do and say without repercussions. These people with near unilateral power who answer to nobody fall silent. And their senses appear to be out of whack. <laughs> What they weren't told, what they weren't hearing, they see. What they haven't heard, they understand. You see, these people who begin to sense who Jesus is, who begin to look on him and stare at him 
and experience the light. These people have their whole framework changed. How they understand, understand themselves and the rest of reality has changed. They're different people. They see the world differently. And here's where I'm going to take a little bit of a different uh, approach than a lot of popular preaching, myself included. Uh, just last week, I preached in the way that I'm about to not preach. Um, what this text says Jesus does in the lives of people is principally one thing. And here's what it isn't. And here's what I would have probably preached as recently as last week. Uh, I would have said that, that Jesus is, is, is trying to bring them joy, which is true. Right? Jesus is trying to fulfill their lives, which is true. He's trying to give them meaning. That's true. He's trying to help them through life. That's true. He's trying to be in intimate relationship with them. And that is true. All of those things are true. But principally, Isaiah is saying something different. And here's why it's a struggle for us. In modern society, we are bent toward individualism and self-expression and love for the self, etc. So it's easy to view Jesus and what he does in that light. And again, many of those things are, are true. I firmly believe from Scripture that the fullest life possible that you can have can only be had in Jesus. I believe that to be true. But what Jesus is describing is a little bit different. He says what encountering Jesus does first and foremost is to reorient them and their lives around the truth. Around the truth. Like the real truth. Modernity, our current age, likes to play this game with relativism. That doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Uh, where we can all have our own unique truth as long as we don't intrude on anybody else's truth. But here's the thing. The case that Isaiah is making is truth exists apart from us to be discovered. We don't get to define it. Right? Two plus two equals four, no matter who you are or where you are or whether you agree or not. Encountering Jesus as you see with these kings, it shows them the truth. They're not, they're understanding things that they weren't told. They're engaging reality even though it's, it's rubbing against the things that they've heard Encountering Jesus shows you the truth. He shows you reality as it really is. And when that happens, we see what happens to the kings. They stop talking. Right? They see and understand things they weren't told. Jesus is the truth. And that brings us to the obvious application and the ending of this sermon. When we're offered an encounter with Jesus, when he comes from on high to become the God-man, we're invited into a response. And you've seen the two responses right here. Either revulsion, to see it, be scared, to not like it, it makes me uncomfortable, and to turn away, or to submit to it and have it change 
your entire being. Have it change your framework for life. Revulsion or submission. Now you can, you can be disgusted and turn from him or you can see it for the truth that it is, the light that he is, and you can have it. So which will it be for you this December? Will you, in fact, in the midst of the cold and the darkness, will you behold him? Will you look to him? And I, I, my prayer for you and for scum is that December 2019 will serve exactly that purpose. That everybody in here will, in a fresh way, behold the light and submit to him. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, again for this night. Thank you for your love. Uh, thank you. Thank you, as I've prayed many times, that you want better for us than we want for ourselves. We think uh, we make good gods, but we really don't. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'll break through, that you will change our heart and change our mind tonight. That you'll show us the light of your goodness, what you mean to achieve in us, and we ask that you'll change our framework. That you'll change the way we see the world, that you'll change the way we relate to and love one another. Help us to live that glorious life as the church that you call us to. We believe that you can do it. Thank you that you would give all of yourself for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, uh, we are going to take communion, uh, which is appropriate in, in light of the content. And so um, up here, uh, you've got, everybody's going to come as you're led. It's right here on the table. You'll take uh, some of the bread or some of the gluten-free crackers and dip them in the grape juice. Uh, and again, you can do that um, as the time is right. If you're uh, not a Christian tonight, uh, we, we would ask that you just stay in your seat. There's no shame in that. Nobody's going to be looking at you. Um, but uh, if you're a believer tonight, come on up and celebrate. That's what this is. That's what communion is. It's a celebration. It's a pensive celebration that Jesus did. He really did come down and give all of himself for us. And so uh, you're, you're invited to come up. If you need prayer, I think there's going to be somebody in the prayer cave. I haven't been told if that's true or not. Uh, but if you need prayer, uh, right over there in that room, someone will pray for you. I can promise you that. Um, but let's read together uh, the words of institution in Scripture about communion. Uh, and then I'll pray and we'll take it together. The Apostle Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, thank you uh, that we get to do this. Thank you for the institution of communion. Thank you that as we 
rip off a piece of bread, we're reminded of your body being broken for us. And as we dip it into the grape juice, we're reminded of your blood that was poured out, suffering on our behalf, taking on our darkness and our evil so that you could give us new life. Help us to proclaim that not just now, but with the rest of our lives as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.